So the title of this uh, message, Encountering a Holy God, Part 2. The outline for today is in this, I believe, beautiful order. A first, amazing depravity. Then we will look at amazing grace. And finally, amazing response. So let's read um, Isaiah 6 from verses 5 to 8. Um, then I said, woe is me. That's Isaiah speaking now. For I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sins is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Well, last week, well, sorry, last time we beheld um, the Lord through the eyes of the angels. And if you recall, we uh, saw that there was loud praises, there were thrilled, there was joy. And this week we'll see the Lord through the eyes of the prophet Isaiah. Now, how did Isaiah respond in being in the presence of God? And so we look at amazing depravity, amazing depravity. In verse 5, Isaiah says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. So here we have in one hand the angel saying, Wow, God, and Isaiah is saying, woe me, cursed is me, shame on me. Woe is me. So Isaiah here is um, cursing himself. He's putting a curse on himself. And he says, for I am ruined. Literally meaning I'm coming apart. I'm, I'm experiencing personal disintegration. Meaning, my burden is weighing heavily upon my shoulders and it's only a matter of time and I'll be crushed beneath my guilt. Well, why? Why, Isaiah, do you feel that? Because I'm a man of unclean lips, he says. Now, what does it mean he's a man of unclean lips? It doesn't mean that um, there is some dirt... Uh, all over his lips. It doesn't mean that he went and he ate some burger and his sauce and oh, I've got sauce all over my lips and I'm speaking to God. <laughs> That's not what he means. It just means that every word that now I assess coming out of my lips is a filthy word. My mouth is a fountain of corruption. Then he adds this extra statement and he says, and I live among a people of unclean lips. So he's identifying his moral condition with the people of his time. He's making his status or level of righteousness or lack of equal to that of his nation, Israel. And he's basically saying, just like everyone around me speaks blasphemy, so do I. I'm not any better than anyone else. Well, how terrible did Isaiah think of himself? You know how terrible? Well, if you flick just a couple of pages back to Isaiah chapter 1, Let's see his assessment of his people around him so that we would know his own assessment when he says, I am just like them. 
And in Isaiah chapter 1, he describes their condition. And he says in verse 4, Alas, sinful nation. And he speaks about the moral corrupt condition of these people. And he says, people weigh down with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. So God here through the mouth of Isaiah, He's rebuking sharply these people and He's saying that these people are so corrupt, they turned their backs on me, they're forsaking me, they walked off and they never looked back. And not only that, God goes further now and he lifts the bonnet so we can see the corruption from within. And he continues uh, in verse 5, just a little uh, sentence later, and he says, the whole head is sick. The whole head. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head. There is what? There is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. What does that mean? Basically means that their hearts were full of rottenness because of sin. This filthy odor of greed, lust, selfishness can be smelled a mile away there was a truckload of moral corruption in their hearts this was the the inner condition from the depth of their hearts they were they were vile sinners and there's a lesson to learn here so I just want to park for a moment and I want to have this opportunity and share with you this lesson that is crucial, important. You cannot isolate the evil that comes out of your lips from the inside of you where the evil originates from. The lips that Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 6 is indication the evil that is coming out of the lips are indication of the state of his being. You know, this is quite similar to what Jesus said, by the way, in Luke 6, 43, where Jesus said, No good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Then Jesus explains even further and he says, The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart heart right some people say i have a good heart i have a really good heart but i just get angry and i yell a lot and jesus says no where is that yelling coming from it's coming from within and what isaiah is saying here he's saying i'm just like you in every way my weaknesses and flaws are before my own eyes. The smell of my own wickedness and depravity is filling my nostrils. I hate the selfishness that is running through my vein. And so he says, I'm, I'm doomed. It's all over. I, I see the brokenness of my own heart and I cannot pretend that I'm a righteous person anymore. Now, how is it that you see your vile, Isaiah? How do you see your sin so ugly like this? Well, he continues. He tells us. He tells us why. 
And he says, in verse, you go back to chapter 6 now, it says, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, brothers and sisters, you cannot gaze upon the holiness of God and not see your spiritual bankruptcy. You cannot have the glory of God glaring at your eyeballs and not drop dead to the ground. This is what happens every time someone in the scripture came face to face with God of all glory. Saul, on his way to Damascus, it says he fell to, to the ground. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 1.28, he said, I fell on my face when he saw the glory of God. John the Apostle, way after he was saved, when he was an old man, he said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Let me read to you a quote by Asis Prol, a wonderful quote that just grabbed my attention. He's uh, describing a state of Isaiah, and he says this, Every nerve fiber in Isaiah's body was trembling. He was looking for a place to hide, praying that somehow the earth would cover him or the roof of the temple would fall upon him. Anything to get him out from under the holy gaze of God. But there was nowhere to hide. He was naked and alone before God. Isaiah now is mourning over his spiritual condition. He's in a desperate need for his heart to be once again pure. How sad. How sad it is, brothers and sisters, that we would go to Christian bookstores like Kurong and you want to look for a place, um, a section where they, uh, you want to get a book of how to mourn over your sin, how to lament, how to have a broken heart, and you would hardly find even a book or two about it. But if you want to find how to be happy, here are six steps to be happy. Here are seven steps to be happy. Not so with God and His holiness. Not so with Isaiah. The way to God is not upward, it's downward. On your knees, you've got you to get so that you can reach to God. Holiness of God throws you onto the ground. Well, this is Isaiah. I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, is this us? In the light of God's holiness, do we see the wretchedness of our sin? Do we mourn and weep over our cravings and lustful desires? When was the last time you locked yourself in a room, got on your knees beside your bed, crying to God to change you, begging Him to make you clean? How easy it is, brothers and sisters, be honest. How easy it is to see the faults of other people around us and we become cynical and critical and we forget completely ab about ourselves. Not so with Isaiah. No. Why? He's in the presence of a holy God. Do you know how it works? Do you know why when people come and, and um, they're in the presence of a holy God, they all of a sudden have this sense of awareness of their own guilt, how their conscience just continue to cry out, guilt, guilt, guilt? Do you know why? You see, this is how it works. You know that blanket of self-righteousness that covers our lustful 
uh, desires that lust of the flesh. This blanket that makes us feel uh, more righteous than we really are. Well, when you're brought into the presence of God, He pulls this blanket off you. And this false sense of godliness gets burnt into ashes by that fire that comes out of being brought into the holy, into the presence of a holy God. And this is what the holiness of God does it burns our self glory. It reduces it down to amber as the infinitely holy God rips this mask, this fake mask of our faces. He hands us as though a mirror and he commands us to look. And when we look, what do we see? Well, we see our wretched, miserable self as it really is. Every small sin is magnified. Every lustful desire that you have, you realize is a direct violation against the holy God. And you begin to loathe what you see. Job said, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, therefore I despise myself. And repent in dust and ashes. See, the first thing that you recognize when you encounter a holy God is how vile, revolting your sins are. And in a single moment, all your self-esteem would be just shattered. Do we sense how revolting our sins are like Isaiah? Brothers, do we have a broken and contrite heart like David's heart? Do we agonize over our sin like Paul, how Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of death? Can I say something? If, if a Christian claims somehow that he mastered all the struggles of his life in such a way that he would say, I'm generally fine. Generally fine. I'm okay. You know, it doesn't mean that he's generally fine. You know that, right? Do you know what it means? It just means that it's been so long since he's been in the presence of a holy God. And if this is you, I have one thing I lovingly urge you to do. Make every effort to tap into the presence of this holy God. As a church, as a body, we cannot afford you to be away from the presence of a holy God. Now you say, you might say, well, this is so uncomfortable. It's true. But that's the only way that God will kill this apathy in among us. That's the only way that God would replace our apathy with revival in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, we have to be honest ourselves. We must go back to that first time when we came to God. You remember how terribly you felt towards your sins. When every sin you committed threw you in the, in the dust before a holy God. We need to reclaim this way of worship. What well, we got no choice. We must. Or else we will never see revival in this place. And while now I just want to be lovingly forthright with you. If you're not broken over your sins... If you're too busy thinking and being preoccupied with the sins of others in such a way that you're not broken over your own sins, can I say something to you? You're a prideful man. And the scripture says God resists the proud. Oh, the blessing of having a broken heart before a holy God. 
Oh, the beauty of knowing and being so convinced of our own ugliness. Does it not say in the scripture, and let me quote, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. So contrary to what we normally hear, right? Isaiah, sorry, Psalms 147.3 says, God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Do you know, as I was studying the scripture about having a broken heart, I discovered something very interesting this week. You know what I discovered? God has got two home addresses. He's got two addresses. Two. Let me read to you. Isaiah. Isaiah wrote about this, by the way, in 57 verse 15. Let me read to you, Isaiah 57, 15, what God is saying. For thus says the high and exalted one. Yeah? High and lofty, right? We spoke about it the other day. Who lives forever, whose name is holy. Listen to this. First address. He says, I dwell on a high and holy place. That's the first address where God lives. Then the second one, he says this, and also with the contrite and a lowly and lowly of spirit. This is where God lives. And why does he live with lowly of spirit? He says this, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite beautiful isn't it you want revival you want god to kill this apathy and replace it with revival you've got to have a broken heart you want to have a broken heart throw yourself in the dust before a holy god that his moral absolute moral standards be your standards Expose yourself to God's holiness and you'll have a broken heart. So back to Isaiah now. And we see in that brief moment, in that just one second, when Isaiah was exposed to this absolute standard of holiness, he felt naked. And that sense of integrity he once had just collapsed. The angels in that scene now, they're praising God. And Isaiah is condemning himself. The angels are rejoicing and they're singing and Isaiah is weeping and wailing. And now this, this prophet is in a desperate need for atonement. And you can just imagine the thoughts that were going on uh, Isaiah's mind. How can I call myself a prophet of God and he's infinitely righteous, but I'm not? How can I speak of him and I'm broken inside? Isaiah now is in need of this sin debt that he now discovered that he has. He's in need of this sin debt to be cancelled. So we come to the second point. Amazing grace. It's beautiful. Amazing depravity. That's first point. The second point is amazing grace. Because what's really great about the grace of God is that, is that God doesn't just only hurt you when you're in His presence, but He also heals you. He doesn't just break you. He binds you by His grace. So we read verses 6 and 7, and it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with the tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So we see here that the Holy God has used one of his angels and he reached to Isaiah. And, and we read here that God, in a moment, he removed 
Isaiah's guilt is taking his sin away from him. Now let's let's break this down a little bit. On on what basis did God forgive Isaiah? Was it that we read here that Isaiah has done anything good to earn God's forgiveness? Was he made worthy somehow? Is it Isaiah's effort? Not at all. In fact, this Isaiah, and by the way, I'm about to quote a verse in Isaiah 64 verse 6. If you don't have it underlined, underline this verse. Isaiah 64 verse 6. What a beautiful verse to refer to. I'm going to read just a section of it where Isaiah himself says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean. Again, he uses the same word here, unclean. Then he says, And all our righteous deeds, everything that we did good, put together, pile them all together, up. They are like what? Filthy. Not nothing. Less than nothing. Why? He says, filthy garment. All our good works are like filthy garment. How would you feel if someone wanted to offer you a filthy garment and he says to you, Sir, on the basis of this garment, accept me. Crazy, right? I mean, imagine a a husband that would have a a bad fight with his wife, like a really bad fight. He, He rebuked her. He insulted her. And then he kind of came to his senses. He wants to reconcile. And then he, he came to her um, with a filthy cloth dripping with rotten milk. And then he would say to his wife, now surely based on this uh, piece of cloth, y- you will accept me, right? And likewise here. Isaiah, if, if, if Isaiah added... All his prayers, reading the Bible, his good works, even his weeping over his guilt and wrapped them all up to offer them to God as a sin offering so that his guilt would be removed. According to Isaiah in his verse, God would be offended. How dare you bring your good works, this filthy garment. Think I'll accept you by that. Don't you know how holy I am? So in what ground did God forgive Isaiah's sins? Isaiah prophesied that this living king, this preeminent king, one day will pay the price for Isaiah's sins. In Isaiah 53 verse 5 it says, Isaiah says, but he, that's the the Lord of hosts, the lofty and exalted one, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And a few verses later, in verse 10, it says, but Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. This high and lofty Lord has come down in a form of a man. And he has become the sin bearer for all those that placed trust in him. And he was crushed, it says. You know what that means? He was the one that was ruined. He was the one that was cursed. The woe was upon him by God the Father as Isaiah's substitute. And for any unbeliever who's in this place, who's sitting here within his four walls, I want to tell you that this God who forgave Isaiah has the same power today to forgive you. This mighty Savior is able to carry all your guilt and atone for your sins if you but trust in Him. Not in your good works. There are filthy garments. But if you just place your trust in Him. 
And for you, brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, do you still enjoy and delight yourself in this truth? Brothers, sisters, do you drink from this fountain? Do you still look upon the bleeding Lamb of God to find strength and joy and freedom to serve Him? It really doesn't matter how old you are. Even if you've been a Christian since Noah's days, this truth of the dying king must still move your heart with all brothers and sisters. This is not just an evangelistic message for unbelievers to come and repent as though they are the ones who need to be in awe of the bleeding Lamb of God. But you don't have to be. No, brothers and sisters. The bleeding Lamb of God who shed His blood for you. How is it that we say our hearts will grow cold towards that, that we're not in awe of His blood that we shed and we just leave that to the unbelievers? We must. We must be in awe of that blood that was shed 2,000 years ago. Now, what a beautiful picture we see here now. And again, there's another contrast where Isaiah, in one hand, he agonizes over his wickedness, but God showers him with his goodness. Isaiah here senses the coldness of his own heart, and God here kindles a flame with a hot coal. Isaiah looks down on his fallenness and God lifts him up. And you too today, if you've been listening to this message and paying attention, you come to Jesus with the rope of execution around your neck because of your guilt. And God would replace it with a golden chain of forgiveness. He would accept you. You come to Christ with your hands cuffed because of your sins and Jesus would uncuff you. Naked, destitute, because of your shame, just like Isaiah. And God would give you the robe of His righteousness to cover you. This is, my friend, what, grace, what the grace of God does. It turns you from a helpless sinner and makes out of you a holy saint. It accepts you as bad as you are and it transforms you into the likeness of His Son. All at the expense of the one who's enthroned as He bled and died on that tree that we call the cross. Beautiful. This is Amazing grace. This is not just grace. It is a holy grace because it's coming and it's bringing out of the heart of a, a holy God. How do we define grace? Well, we, we have this short, clever uh, way of defining it and we say, oh, it's when God um, gives us what we don't deserve. Right? Yes. True. But it doesn't do it much justice. Because it only defines grace. But when we speak about holy grace, we're talking about the grace that only is so unique to God. How do you define that? You know, um, if, if you go to work, and then you get paid, we say, well, that's works. Right? You go to work, you get paid, that's work-based, right? But if you don't go to work, and then the manager pays you, we say that's grace. Because you don't deserve this money, but he gave it to you anyway, we say that this is grace. Well, that's great. Yes, it is grace. But if you want to expound on this analogy so that you can actually zoom into that holy grace, this amazing grace that took place on the cross, and when you came to saving faith, I believe it will be more like this. 
It will be more like you're, you're too lazy to go to work, so you didn't work, and then, and then your manager paid you anyway. But wait, there is more. But, but in your heart, it, you hated that manager so much, you hated the company, so you decided one day to go and burn the whole office, the whole company, turned it into ashes, then the manager paid you. But there is more. And in your stubbornness and in your rebellion, the cops found you out, they jailed you, and then the manager paid you fine. Not with his money, but with the life of his son. And somehow he changed your heart. And then, even after that, when you cried out to him, in a moment, he lifted you up, brought you into his kingdom, adopted you as one of his sons, and your heart, this new heart of yours, has become his abiding place. Then he tells you, you're now and forever mine, and he who touches you touches the apple of my eyes. And then, even though you fall, and you betray him, and you sin against him, he still continues to nourish you and sustaining you and lavishing you with his goodness. And brothers, I submit to you, when you ponder upon, upon his blessings, you have not even yet scratched the surface of the extent of God's grace that he showers us with. How amazing is that grace of God? So, when you encounter a holy God, first, He will remove the scales of your eyes. You will see your wickedness. That's amazing depravity. That's number one. But when you come to the end of yourself, then He will bathe you in His amazing grace in the person of Jesus Christ. That's amazing grace. God's grace is so amazing. Why? Because God himself is amazing. He's an awesome God. Brothers, yes, in one hand, God is an awesome, almighty, fearful God before whom you must tremble. But on the other hand, he is a kind, he's a merciful and loving God. And that's why his, um, his grace is an amazing grace. Now, how do you respond to this amazing grace? If we would ask Isaiah, Isaiah, how do you respond to this amazing grace? And we come to the third point now, amazing availability. Amazing availability. And we read verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Now stop right there. Let's explain this just a little bit. Uh, whom shall I send? I mean, think about it in that scene. Who's in front of God? There's only Seraphim and Isaiah. It's not a multiple choice question. I mean, FYI, God, God has already decreed, by the way, that, that he will only use flesh and blood to speak of him in this world. Well, that cancels out the seraphim. The answer is obvious. Isaiah, you go for the Lord. You speak about what you've seen and heard and testify about this majestic God to his people. But notice the way this is rendered. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? It's a, it's a question form. Why? Why didn't God just say to Isaiah in, in a, just a clear command, go and do this? Why does he put it in a question form? Look, it's, it's kind of like God is saying, um, look, everyone, all right, um, I want to have a spokesman. That will represent me. But not anyone. Not anyone. 
I only want volunteers. I only want those that would serve out of gratitude. You know, there are no coerced soldiers in the army of God. You know, God doesn't need to twist any of his soldiers' arms to serve him. You know why? Because in this wonderful portrait that God is painting before us, in this scene, in this vision, he's showing us something beautiful. You know what he's showing us? When this grace of God liberates the guilty conscience, what, it, what does it do? It molds the heart. You see, the, the grace of God doesn't stop at giving you pardon of sin, then leaves your heart in its corrupt state in such a way that God still has to impose on you to serve him. And so what do you do? You have to serve him, but you hate it, but you've got to do it anyway. That's not the God of the Bible. Certainly not the God of the new covenant. No, brothers. The grace of God cleanses you inside out. It makes the will of God the very desire of your new heart. And it unleashes you to serve willingly and cheerfully. That's what the grace of God does in His people. None of God's true servants, true servants, serve begrudgingly. No. None go for the Lord feeling that they have to drag their feet. So by God asking who will go for us, He's calling each one of us to open His eyes. And to behold the beautiful effect of this amazing grace on the brokenhearted. I want to ask you, brothers, sisters, has the grace of God touched your souls? Are we enjoying this grace of God in our lives? How do we respond to that? Well, in the finishing, I want to show you um, in Isaiah's response, three observations. And we finish with that. Three observations in Isaiah's response. And we want to learn something that we can get out of Isaiah's response. So we read here, Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. Three observations in this short sentence. First, let us pay attention to his eagerness to serve. Notice Isaiah didn't say, here I am, as, as though uh, God is looking for uh, Isaiah and he's saying, kind of, you know, I can't find you. And then Isaiah kind of like wants to signal out to God and saying, God, here is my GPS location. I'm going to text it to you because you can't find me. It, it's not about the location of Isaiah. You know, I'm over here, God. Can't see me because, you know, I'm little and all the angels are big. No, he says, here am I. Send me. Isaiah here is interested to step out of the crowd. He's eager to be um, at the front for his neck to be in the line. Here am I. Meaning, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to let this opportunity pass by me. And so among all these mighty angels with six wings and all the rest, this little Isaiah is so excited that he's putting his hands up in the air, he's jumping, he's calling out to the Lord, and he's saying, here am I, Lord, pick me, pick me. I'm, I'm your man, I'm yours. Once his sins are forgiven, he's saying to God, God, if you're going to use anyone, it'll be me, choose me. He's so eager, is he not? How come? He, he just said, just earlier, in fact, just the previous sentence, he, he, he said that, woe is me, I'm guilty. Yes, he did say that. But that's exactly the power of the gospel does in a believer's life. You know, your, your sins that were condemning you and that guilt and shame that were haunting you, haunting your memory. 
incarcerating your heart to serve the Lord. Christ carried all that far away to the cross where your sins, your guilt, your shame have been buried with Christ. They died under God's wrath. Justice has been satisfied. And now the Bible tells us now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So feeling guilty or not must never chain your heart that is eager to serve. Why? Because feeling guilty will never ever change reality. And the reality, brothers and sisters, is this, that Christ bore all our sins once and for all. And He freed you to serve Him without worrying about feeling guilty. That's the power of the gospel that we believed in. So, brothers, sisters, in that first observation, let me tell you, when the devil whispers in your ears saying, look at you. How can you serve God when you're like that? Don't you know you're such a sinner? You're not worthy, right? He didn't tell him, yes. I'm, I'm not worthy. But Jesus' blood speaks for me. Right? Yes, I'm a sinner, but, but in Christ, I'm a perfectly forgiven sinner. And I will serve my master, not because I am worthy, but because he is worthy of my service to him. And this grace, his grace has set me free. It released me to serve my king freely, cheerfully. And so for this reason, Isaiah feels he's over the moon. He's been overwhelmed with that grace of God. Once his guilt is removed, his heart is filled with gratitude. And now he wants to serve this living king joyfully without being restrained by his guilt. So he serves eagerly. Second thing that we learn from here is reliance in serving. Reliance. Now pay attention to this. Again, we'll look at that sentence, short sentence. Here am I, send who? Somebody else? Here am I, send somebody else, God. (laughs) He didn't say that, did he? I mean, he didn't say, whoa, you know, these seraphims, God, I mean, you want somebody to to go and proclaim the, the good news. I mean, look at him, you know, they've got six wings. They can just whoop. Fly. And if when they shouted, what happened to the foundation of the temple? It shook, right? So if you want anybody to be your spokesman, Paul, these guys are good. He didn't say that. Notice also what he didn't say. Uh, he didn't say, well, God, I mean, uh, all right, I appreciate that, but you just heard me. I'm, I just said, what was me? Uh, I mean, give me some time to grow my holiness and my giftedness. And then maybe a few years later, I'll think about serving you, God. Didn't say that. How come? What, didn't, didn't Isaiah know how weak he was? Didn't he know that he was so incompetent to serve the living God? You see, once Isaiah was exposed to this immense power, of the holy God, the grandeur of God. He realized that God is way too powerful, that he can use the weakest of the weak and still get that job done. Whether God would use a seraphim, a turtle, or Isaiah, it really doesn't matter for God. He's that powerful. Because the power that I need, that you need, in order to serve God is not rooted in us. But it comes from the one who commissioned us to do the work. God does what He pleases and He does it with ease. 
God loves using weak people, brothers and sisters. We've got to get that in our hearts and minds. 1 Corinthians 1.27, it says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Don't you love that? To shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Let, let me explain to you something really important. We're almost done. God's agenda, by the way, He's got one agenda. It's to reveal His glory. Amen? To reveal His glory. And His glory is displayed all the more when He uses a weak person, broken person like Isaiah, than He would use mighty angels. Are you weak? Are you timid? Be encouraged. God, our God is so great that he's not afraid to use weak people like us and still get the job done. And by the way, history tells us that God loves using weak people. He loves it. Think of Moses. When did God choose to use Moses to deliver his people? When he was young, strong in the king's palace or when he was 80 years old, shepherd in a desert? What about Gideon's time? Well, why did God reduce the army of Israel from 32,000 to 300? Jeremiah was a fearful young man. Timothy was timid. Gideon was full of doubt. Moses was a cowed murderer who couldn't speak properly. David was a king who couldn't hold a sword. Peter was thick-headed. And the 12 disciples, they so terrible. They, they fell asleep during a prayer meeting, right? All these people that God commissioned, um, they had one thing in common, brothers and sisters. You know what it was? It wasn't their eloquence of speech. It was not. What was it? They were weak, fragile. But let me tell you one more thing. They relied on God, not on their strength. It was obvious to them they had no strength to rely on, so they relied on God's strength. You see, put it this way, brothers and sisters, again, another little bit of theology, right? If God used the mighty angels in the proclamation of the gospel so that people would be saved, I submit to you there would not be much glory revealed. But when God uses and only uses broken, foolish people like you and I and still have all the elect saved, now that is a testimony of how powerful and glorious God is. Rely on God's power and you will have the courage to serve. Final observation. Final one. I'm stretching here with time. That's the last one, I promise. Serving the king is gain. It's not a loss to serve God. It is gain. Please note again what Isaiah did not say. Isaiah didn't say, when God said, you know, who, who, should, who shall go for us? Isaiah didn't first say, where do you want me to go? How far do you want me to go? Who do you want me to speak to? What's the salary, God? How much are we going to get paid? None of that. You see, Isaiah here basically signed a blank check on his whole life. He didn't try to bargain with God. He didn't negotiate these terms and conditions. All it was, God asked and Isaiah answered. God commissioned. And Isaiah committed. It was unconditional response. How come? Let's go back into that scene. So that we know what was going on in Isaiah's mind. Isaiah is standing there. He's looking at the seraphim. These mighty angels. Way more clever than he would ever be. Way more wiser than he would ever think that he might be. And all of them are ministering and serving God. And he's thinking in his mind, how is it panning out for them? 
being so eager and excited to serve God. They're loving it. They're thrilled. They're overthrilled with joy in the Lord. And they couldn't keep it in. God forbid that we would ever think that somehow we could out-clever those seraphim who committed all their lives to God. And we think that watching movies are better than serving God like this seraphim do. No. He looked at them. He realized, whoa, if they are way better than me in their thinking, in their proximity to God, far more powerful and committed everything to God and they can see the joy in serving the Lord. He said, I've got to have a piece of the pie. It was such a privilege for Isaiah to speak of the one who is seated on the throne. Listen to me in the closing of this message. It wasn't like God was saying, I'm kind of growing old. You know, no one is listening to me anymore. And then somehow Isaiah thought, you know, I feel sorry for God. You know, I'm going to give him a hand. I'll help him out. <laughs> no. The God who's able to save to the uttermost, the most stubborn heart, he could do that with or without Isaiah, right? But in his kindness, he, he, he would say something like this. Would you like to be used by me? Would you like to experience this supernatural blessing and the unspeakable delight that comes out of ministering to me? And Isaiah, he wants to have a piece of this cake, a slice of that thing. And he believes that there will be so much pleasure in giving his life away for the king. And he would say to God, it would be such an honor for me to represent you, my Lord. God, let me be a candlestick that burns so to shine forth the light of the gospel that saved me. God, would you please fill me, consume me, stretch me, use me, work through me. I don't want to live for anything else but for your glory alone. Why? Because serving you, my king, is my gain. Brothers, sisters, it will be an honor for us to represent this king. And double the honor if we're rejected for this king. Triple the honor if we die for that king. Somewhere in between when we go to jail for him. God is not in need of us to help him out. But what God wants, brothers and sisters, is for us to sit in his golden chariot, if you like, and experience this abundant joy that comes out of ministering to him. So, may God bring you into his presence and keep you there. Until you see your wretchedness and then you cry out for mercy. May God soak you in His free, abundant grace until you say, Enough, enough, no more. I can't handle your grace, God, anymore. And as a result, you then trample upon your apathy and throw yourself at the feet of the King and give Him your life away. And be set on fire as a torch that shines forth the gospel of Jesus. Whether at home or in the streets or with one another. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask you, Lord to bring us into this wonderful experience that, that you brought Isaiah into. God, may we never be content in just attending a church. May we never even be content by just simply having a quiet time and we just tick the box. 
God, may we never ever be content until we pursue you and wrestle like Jacob did with you until we meet you face to face, until we see you by faith and be found in the presence of a holy God. We pray that you would cultivate in this church a broken heart, contrite spirit, no matter what the world tells us. Break us, Lord. Then by your grace, bind our wounds. And then release us, Lord, to be used by you until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.